Hello, fellow foodies. Thanks so much for tuning in to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. In this 61st episode on the show, we're going to dive into some of my all-time favorite topics, plants, history, and adventure. If you've ever been to Miami and visited the Fairchild Tropical Botanic Garden, you may be wondering, where does its namesake come from? I actually spent a lot of time there as a graduate student. That's actually where I learned all about plant taxonomy, wandering all around the grounds of this amazingly diverse botanic gardens. Our special guest for this episode happens to be an expert on the history of David Fairchild, and he wrote the book, The Food Explorer. And this book covers Fairchild's life and adventures. Daniel Stone is a writer on environmental science, agriculture, and botany. He writes for National Geographic and is a former White House correspondent for Newsweek and The Daily Beast. He's written for Time Magazine, The Washington Post, Vice, Literary Hub, and has presented at the National Academy of Sciences. He also teaches environmental policy at Johns Hopkins University. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Daniel. It's great to finally meet you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, I think as I mentioned, um, I don't know when your book came out, I reached out. I was like, man, this is just an amazing book. I loved it so much. It read like an adventure novel. Tell me, what brought you to become interested in David Fairchild and and kind of share that story? Well, first, let me say I'm thrilled you're interested in Fairchild <laughs> the book. While I was writing it, it came out about two years ago. I kept thinking to myself, I think this stuff is so fascinating. This story is so gripping. Will anyone else think so when it comes <laughs> out? And I'm always tickled when, when other people do. Um, I learned about David Fairchild at uh, National Geographic. He was on the board Mm -hmm. of Geographic in the 19-teens and 20s. Wow. He was the son-in-law. He married the daughter of Alexander Graham Bell, who always gets way more attention, way more (laughs) focus. And so here was this little footnote about a son-in-law of Graham Bell who was a uh, explorer botanist. And I thought that was the most delightful title a person could have. So I dug into him and his, his background, his history, I found his journals and his old diaries. I found his family and uh, grandchildren he has who are still alive uh, all over the country and how how gripping his story was to them and how grateful they were that someone was finally eager to tell it. So where does Fairchild come from? He's not originally from Miami, right? Nope, he grew up in Michigan and then his father uh, became the president of Kansas State University. So they moved to Manhattan, Kansas. He uh, grew up around a lot of plants, a lot of farmers, a lot of people who made their living in the dirt. And he saw the effect that too little plant diversity had on America, that there are too many farmers, more than half of the labor force were farmers, And altogether, they had too few things to grow. So there's not a lot of diversity. There's not a lot of options. There's not a lot of economic mobility. Mm. And he took that lesson, and it really drove him eventually around the world. But first, he went to Washington, D.C., where he became a junior scientist for the USDA. And from there, he sort of like launched into a series of, of explorations of saying, we need more crops, we need more plants and more foods in this country to boost farmers and boost our economy. And that really started his travels around the world. That's great. Well, 
what was the USDA like back then when Fairchild came into this job? I mean, I don't know what picture most people have in their head of the USDA today as this government agency, but what was it like kind of in those early days? Very small, very, very small. And unlike today, where we all think of the USDA as, you know, handing out farm subsidies and, and you know, leases on tractors and all these big <laughs> The USDA was a small four-story building in Washington, D.C., a few hundred employees, and their work was mostly reactive. Mm -hmm. So if you were a farmer in Iowa or in Kansas who had a problem with a blight or a type of fungus or an insect or anything that was affecting your land, you could write to Washington and maybe they would write back with some advice. But often they wouldn't and often they couldn't. And there was no real react, there was no real proactive and offensive action from the government to try to make farmers' lives easier. And that's what led Fairchild's sales pitch, send me around the world, let me find new plants, let us help farmers in a new way. That's why his sales pitch was was so well received. That's great. Well tell us what are some of the where are some of the places that he traveled in his in his in the beginning? What did There's, he where did he go? I, what did he find? He um Altogether, I'll say he went to 52 countries. He traveled wow. to all of them by boat, all of them between about 1895 and 1910. Really mm -hmm. pivotal time for travel, really dangerous time to be on a boat all over through some countries. His first, tra his first uh, adventure was really on the island of Corsica, right off of Italy, where the government had sent him on the assignment to find better citron a type of citrus similar to a lemon and lemons were being grown in parts of Florida and California, but not great ones. And the breed stock was really old, antiquated. Lemons don't come from North America. They come from Eastern Asia, from China. So they said, go somewhere in the Eastern hemisphere where they grow really well, Corsica, and get some breed stock, get some buds, get some cuttings, get some fruit and seeds and bring them back so that we can propagate them in America and share them with farmers in California and Florida who can use them to grow better crops, to perhaps charge more money for better crops and really enliven the citrus industry in the US. That was his first assignment. And it's the first chapter in the book, but I'll tell you, just as a spoiler, he gets arrested on that assignment. He's very young, he's very naive, he's not good at this work, and he almost gets locked up for life in this strange country, wow. on this strange island. He gets out, and from there he gets a lot better at the work to the point where he goes all over the world picking up everything that he can in every country, packing it very well, and trying to get it to the U.S. where it could be regrown and shared. That's amazing. Well, one of the other things that captured me about his story is as a scientist who does travel and do, you know does plant exploration myself, I'm always hunting for funding. <laughs> and funding was also a challenge for Fairchild. I know that the USDA covered some of his initial expenses, but how did he his, you know expeditions across across the globe? Great, great question. And you're right. The USDA was not a source of millions of dollars in those days to fund illustrious travel. Uh, he was young and he didn't require much. Uh, so that helped. But also, you know, taking steamships over the course of months across oceans was not cheap. Fairchild was extremely, extremely lucky. And on his first voyage across the Atlantic Ocean, he runs into a man who becomes his mentor and his underwriter. 
And this man is a world traveling millionaire playboy bachelor. And <laughs> has been everywhere in the world. His name is Barbara Lathrop. He loves talking and telling stories about his adventures. And here comes young David Fairchild who wants to know everything about him, everywhere that Barbara Lathrop has been. And of course, anytime you ask for advice from an older, richer person, right, it kind of feeds their ego. And as a result, Barbara Lathrop decides he wants to invest in Fairchild. And he invests by offering him $1,000, which in those days was worth about $25,000 now, right? A big mm -hmm. amount of money yeah. uh, to launch Fairchild and his early adventures. And that's really what got him started. Because once Fairchild started traveling, and sometimes he traveled with Barbara Lathrop, once he sort of produced results and showed this proof of concept that he could go to a foreign land, pick up mm -hmm. a foreign fruit or vegetable or seed, anything, bring it back, propagate it, share it with farmers. Once he showed he could do that, the government started sending more and more money to this type of work to the point that Fairchild is eventually leading an entire team of young explorers who are going around the world. It's amazing. And there, there, those expeditions led to huge changes in the crops that we now know today as being something common that you have in the U.S. What are some examples of things that the listeners might be surprised to find came from, from these um, voyages? Well, almost everything we eat is not from here. Uh, mm -hmm. Every plant in the supermarket, you know, apples come from northern Central Asia. Oranges come from China and lemons and citrus, all citrus. Uh, grapes um, come from around the Caucasus and Georgia, the country. Avocados from, from South, Central and South America. Fairchild eventually goes and picks up a lot of these things. His biggest hits are probably avocados, which he picks up in Chile. And the avocados he picks up eventually are hybridized and crossbred and um, commercialized until they're patented by a man named, named Rudolf Haas. So the Haas avocado. It's avocado, okay. <laughs> Fairchild. Fairchild loved mangoes and he picked up more than a hundred varieties of mangoes from India all the way over to the Philippines. Um, and everywhere he went, he was trying mangoes for ones that were you know, thick and not too fibrous and super sweet. And the stone was small enough that you could propagate them and grow them commercially. He picked up hops in Germany that uh, funded and produced better beer in the era that Budweiser and Anheuser-Busch are growing into these big American brewers. He picked up seedless grapes outside of Venice, Italy from a monk who gave him uh, some, some cuttings. Uh, he went uh, to Japan in 1901 and really fell in love with the cherry blossom trees and the cherry blossoms that we all know now in Washington, D.C. and all over the country were because Fairchild brought them here and then brokered that exchange with the Japanese government for the gift of those trees in the nation's capital. So in all, he brought thousands of things. Uh, many of them did not survive. Most of them did not work. But uh, of the dozens that really did, they had that effect of creating huge new industries uh, and, and enlivening the American economy. No, that's that's huge. And, you know, his legacy of mangoes persists um, today in Miami. We have this annual um, King Mango Strut Parade where everyone dresses up. There's like the mango parade and everyone's eating mangoes. <laughs> and it's, can you just before we move on to some other topics, can you just tell us a bit about how he ended up in Miami 
From yeah, he, um, like I said, he, he moved from Michigan, then to Kansas, then as a young man to Washington, D.C., and from there he traveled. And eventually he gets married, and as I mentioned, he married the daughter of Alexander Graham Bell. So he and his wife, Marion, they would spend their summers at the Graham Bell uh, estate up in Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia is beautiful. It's one of my favorite places in the world. It is not a great place for growing tropical <laughs> plants, right? Fairchild loved tropical fruit. And so eventually he makes his way down to Florida and he does what Fairchild does for his whole life. He he chats people up. He makes connections. He he tries new fruits and tries to figure out how to grow them and how to package them and how to sell them. And Florida, uh, you know, for a man who loved going around the world, particularly in the tropics and particularly to countries that were warm all year round and where you could grow almost anything. The U.S. doesn't have tropical land, right? And the closest yeah. we have is really Florida, uh, or the closest we had before Hawaii was part of the U.S. was really just Florida. And he loved that sense of humidity, that heat, that sort of warm blanket that, that we all think of as awful, right? But for <laughs> plants, it's like the best right. thing you can imagine. So he, he spent more and more time there until about 1910, when he and Marion uh, bought a piece of property down in Coral Gables that is still there. It's known as the Kampong, mm -hmm. uh, a name that comes from Indonesia, uh, which is another country that he visited and really, really loved. Yeah. And that's now part of the National Tropical Botanic Garden um, collection. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's a beautiful place to visit um, for anyone that's interested in seeing some of his plant collections. So, Daniel, your book is all about travels and people and the plants they're connected to. How how has how has human migration and the spread of agriculture kind of how has that happened across the globe? How did we get to where we are today? Well, uh, agriculture is uh, mostly centered in a few major hotspots of civilization. Mm -hmm. Right? We've all heard of Mesopotamia and Egypt. Um, places in sort of modern-day Iraq that were mo that were uh, foundations of agriculture thousands of years ago, and in the Western Hemisphere we had you know the the Incas and right in the Andes area where people in large civilizations grew crops and had to grow them for volume, volume mm -hmm. and consistency to feed a lot of people. We didn't see that as much in North America where we live now. We had a uh, widespread communities of Native Americans who had their own native crops, but because there were relatively few of them over so much land, they could sort of hunt and gather a bit more effectively than needing to feed millions and millions of people uh, quickly and reliably. Um, so agriculture came from those few hotspots, and you know it, it sort of moved around as time went on. And the first time we really see this mass exchange of the two hemispheres was around Christopher Columbus, and we call it the Columbian Exchange, when Columbus, you know, comes over to the New World, and uh, he delivers things that no one in the West had tried, and, and vice versa, mm -hmm. and it really is this explosion of, of biodiversity in terms of food and plants, at least. And from there, we start to see um, the cultural aspect of it, right? So today, when you think about why you know, a lot of our oranges and our orange juice comes from Brazil, right? But oranges do not come from Brazil. And oranges haven't even been in Brazil for more than 500 years. But Brazil became a hotspot and a real major production center 
for oranges, the same uh, as uh, potatoes that uh, became such mm -hmm. a central part of Irish food that yeah. you had this potato famine that is like central to Irish history. Uh, uh, potatoes come from the Andes, come from, you know, part of Central America. But you had this exchange of foods and things found new land, new climates, new soil and new cultures that appreciated them all the way up to the point where, you know, if you think of one of the most like iconic foods in the world, I think of it as pizza, right? Pizza is an Italian creation. We all know that. But, uh, you know, the, the flour for pizza and dough comes from mostly Russia and for much further north. The tomatoes that are central to um, marinara sauce come mostly from Central and South America, right? And you had all these, you know, these crossings of oceans and crossings of land through these big civilizations that eventually all these ingredients pass through Italy. Italy claims them, finds a use for them, and creates new innovative food out of them. Yeah, I I love that example of the the Italian cuisine and what we know as Italian food today is nothing like what it was, you know, 500 years oh. ago. Um, you can see similar stories around, um, I'm thinking of things like the chili pepper. I think it's amazing you go to like a Thai restaurant and you order something with so many chilies to indicate the heat. But actually those chilies were originally from the Americas um, that have become so integrated into that cuisine and into that culture um, that we just kind of take it for granted that chilies have always been there. Um, yeah, food food travels and food, I, I often liken food to immigrants, you know. It came to America like many of our families did as immigrants on boats. 100, 200 or longer ago. But this era of Fairchild and of a real boost in, in exchange of, of biological knowledge um, and plant botanical knowledge came about 100 years ago. And this was a, a much easier time for travel. Boats could get places much more reliably and much faster than they had in the past. And as a result, we started to see a much more vigorous exchange of plants. Yeah. Well, and there's there's another really um, interesting character in your book, um, who was also a great explorer in his own right. And I was wondering if we could talk a bit about his work, since we're on the topic of citrus earlier. And um, that's Frank Meyer. I have a little, you know, Meyer lemon tree um, just outside of my garden in a pot. I bring it in in the winter. But how did this lemon become popular? And who was Frank Meyer? Where did he find it at? Frank Meyer could be a, a film, a, a movie star on his own. <laughs> they should make movies about these guys. I mean, this yeah, would, be, that would be amazing. We sold a film option for this book, and hopefully oh, we'll see it on screen. Who knows? Um, but yeah, Fairchild did this work for, like I said, about a decade and a half. It was a lot of travel. It was a lot of time. And eventually he gets married, and he can't travel as much. He can't just disappear for months at a time. So he hires a group of young men to continue this sort of kinetic traveling around the world for plant hunting. Uh, one of them goes to Russia to find better wheat varieties. One of them goes to Guatemala to find better avocados. And the third one is Frank Meyer. And his job is to go to China to literally walk across the country, right? China is one of the oldest civilizations in the world. It's been farming for at least 2000 years. And he thinks that Fairchild thinks that if Meyer goes and walks across and just finds what he finds, that he'll find something magical, probably a lot of magical things. And if, Meyer, only, if only science could be funded this way today. It's like, yeah, just go just, and explore. Right. You'll find something amazing. <laughs> it's, it's great. Yeah. 
He goes in 1905, and he spends more than a decade walking around China. He walks um, down, he walks around Beijing, he walks to Shanghai, he walks down the whole Korean peninsula, and then back, and then he continues going. And it's very, very dangerous work, right? A lot of the, the people he meets in these very, very small towns have never really seen a white person before. They don't really trust him. China is entering a period of revolution. No one knows which side he's on. He gets beat up, he gets robbed, he gets attacked by wild animals, uh, really harrowing stuff. But through it all, he's really successful at plant hunting. And he, he picks up varieties of wild pears and oats, new types of um, soybeans, and many, many new types of citrus, one of which he finds in a doorway of a family growing, like a small tree above a door, and its fruit is really, really striking, right? It's really yellow, super yellow, like an egg yolk, and when he eats it, it's like sweeter than a lemon, but tartar, more tart than an orange, and he thinks it's a natural hybrid of a lemon and an orange, and he, he's mostly right, we know that now based on genetics, and it's a really rare find. And he imports it, he sends it in a crate, and it gets received in Chico, California, and it starts to be propagated and grown. Um, and people really like it because it's a really tame type of lemon. And a uh, hundred years later, it's amazing how the Meyer lemon, named after him, has become a real favorite of culinary professionals, people like Alice Waters, uh, Martha Stewart, Alton Brown, who cook with a lot of different flavors and and the chemistry of it all, and they love the Meyer lemon for its the, the tameness of its flavor. Yeah, it's it, it is a delicious lemon. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, one thing that comes to mind is people might be wondering, could somebody plant explore in this way today? And I think there there are some additional protocols that are in place nowadays. How does that factor into the history of, of these crops and, and kind of what are what was acceptable then and what's acceptable today? It's a, it's a great question. So Fairchild was going around the world in an era where this was new, right? Not that many people before had done this work. Not that many plants existed here. And there was an excitement about it. There was a hunger for these new plants. But anyone who's worked in any of the sciences knows that there's also a risk, right? And when you're going around the world and you're bringing plants to a place where they have not grown before, you're bringing the risk of disease or invasive species or maybe a new pest that can uh, demolish other types of crops. And this became a debate in about 1908, 1910. You know, it's great that Fairchild's bringing in new plants, but at what cost? What is that, What else is he bringing in that might be a big issue, a big problem? Um, this was a big debate in Congress. It got all the way to the president, um, who was Teddy Roosevelt, eventually William Taft. And people started really being concerned to the point where Congress passed a quarantine law that basically said, you cannot just bring in any plant to any port. We have a process now. It has to go through inspectors. It has to be propagated in a government greenhouse. We need to make sure that we're not exposing ourselves to risk. And because of that quarantine law, that is still the reason today why when you get on an airplane, you fill out that little form that says, I'm not bringing in fruit, I haven't been on a farm. It's because of that. So when you ask about, is this work still done today? Could you still do it? Yeah, you could. You could go around the world and look for plants. 
Um, but the world is pretty different now, right? Not only could you not bring in sort of a whole suitcase full of plants into the, you know, LAX airport, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, people would inspect what you're doing. Also, you wouldn't have sort of a great rate of return, right? Maybe you'd wander around some some foreign countryside and find a few new plants. But the idea that it's something that has never been seen before and could grow easily and commercially in the U.S., very slim. So the plant exploration now is mostly done by a lot of multinational food companies who go around the world looking for new flavors or new ingredients. A lot of the exploration is done in laboratories when they're talking about how to meld, you know, genes of different types of fruits, how to create a new hybrid of a seed, how to make a new flavor that could be put on our, you know, on our Doritos or whatever it is. That work is not really being done in the field so much as in the lab where you can really manipulate much smaller parts of foods plants and flavors in a way that you couldn't 100 years ago. Yeah, there's a lot of plant exploration now around crop wild relatives where people are looking for wild relatives of major crops to find ways to um, yield better pest resistant species. And yeah, the USDA um, quarantine rules are really important because, again, back to citrus, we're now dealing with like major crop failures in the citrus industry in the U.S. because of, of these diseases that spread. And because we have so little biodiversity in our crop systems here in the U.S., we're losing a lot of those crops because of green, yeah. citrus greening and stuff like that. Yeah. We have yeah. a lot of mechanisms in place now for safety. And like you said, I think that's a great thing. Like it's really important. We've seen a lot of the risk and a lot of the damage that you could do if you're not careful. Fairchild was pretty lucky that he didn't start off this like biological, like nuclear bomb, but he still introduced things that like were, were questionable and were dangerous. And it was probably inevitable that eventually the US and a lot of countries would put up these biological barriers around their borders to say, you know, we can't uh, we can't restrict everything. We can't we can't eliminate all risk, but we can do a lot more than we're doing. And that's one of the reasons we have all the, these safeguards and measures. And I think that's for the best. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one other topic I wanted to dive in because the podcast is all about exploration of this concept of the food medicine continuum. What did you learn in your research about the links between food and medicine? Was this something that Fairchild or Frank Meyer thought about at all? Or you know, what are your broader thoughts on food as medicine? Yeah, they, they didn't think of that as much. Um, they were mostly after commercial crops. What can we get that we could grow at huge scale and huge volume? But in, in traveling the world, in talking to local people, they'd find that something was you know, deemed the local cure for, you know, stomach uh, upsetness, or they, you know, something was, some plant that you could chew was best for, uh, for headaches. One of my favorites was that uh, Fairchild visits uh, the Andes Mountains, just um, uh, near Ecuador and, and further south, and he takes a mule over the Andes. And while he's doing this, uh, someone gives him some leaves to chew, right? These are coca leaves yeah. that, of course, are the foundation for what becomes cocaine, right? Coca. And, um, you know, he sees that this leaf gives people miraculous energy. It lets people run up mountains at full speed. Um, and that becomes really like a, a, a point of cultural lore, right? What if this, what if this leaf, uh, can 
do something else magical. As we know now, exactly how that like changed, right? When you ask about now, you know, I think food as medicine really accounts for a lot on on research, on a lot on chemistry, right? When you think of the notion of phytonutrients, about nutrients hidden inside plants, that's not really something you could do a hundred years ago. You didn't really have a good enough microscope and good enough sort of a study structure where you could test what effects things had. So a lot of it was in your head. A lot of it was was cultural lore of what something did. And then a lot of it was hope. And so now I think we're, we're in a, a vast new era, even over the past few years, of mining these plants better, of understanding the molecular compounds within them. And not just that this one grows an apple and this one grows an orange, but that this maybe tiny little vine that no one ever cared about before could be a cure for types of metabolic diseases, could be a cure for cardiovascular disease or a treatment for something uh, that is chronic throughout someone's life. I think that relies on modern medicine, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that over the next uh, few decades. No, I totally agree. It's really an exciting time in this area of science because the chemical tools, the chemistry tools that we have now to take closer looks at plants have just expanded. Um, So many opportunities are now available for those and to, you know, mine that data because there's so much, there's so many compounds, even in a single plant tissue um, that could yield some interesting medical effects. Yeah, and we already have a lot of them. I mean, when you think of things like um, beta carotene, right, in carrots or lycopene in tomatoes, resveratrol, uh, that's, you know, what makes red wine so great for you. Yeah, uh, we already know yeah. some of these things, but I think there's, there. I think we know less than 1% of the great phyto plant-based nutrients on earth. And I think we're going to be learning a lot more about many more of them over the next few decades. Oh, Absolutely. Well, as as we move forward, um, are there? Do you have any any ideas or advice based on your understanding of history of where 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 we should go or how do we find these um, better foods or healthier foods or healthier diets for the future? Yeah, I think a lot of it is is hidden within those phytonutrients, hidden within plants. Plant based diets, I think, will continue to grow and become the yeah. norm and our appreciation of plants i think also i mean one thing you know you, you could look at fairchild's era 100 years ago versus today and find a lot of differences right things ways the world was things that he could do things that he couldn't do but one sort of through line that's consistent through then and now is the joy that comes with growing plants, right? Yes. And and maybe we're not all going to be in this new future of growing our own full diet in our backyard. And that's okay. But I think what Fairchild would say if he were alive now is, you know, you could learn a lot from a plant. You could learn a lot uh, that will boost your character from trying to grow them and, and experimenting and seeing what they do and what they need and what they produce. And I think if more people, you know, be it in their vast suburban backyard or their tiny urban window, you know, box or anything in between, growing seeds and trying to produce something and sort of maintaining a relationship with the natural world that way is really, really special. And I think especially in this era where we're all stuck at home, where we're all trying to find nature anywhere we can. You know, I think that's like a, an omnipresent, it's always there. It's an evergreen way to experience 
a small element of magic. Well, I can't think of a better way to end this podcast. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Daniel, for coming on the show. This was really great speaking with you. And I really hope the movie comes out because I will definitely show up to the theater for that. Yeah, I'm show up dressed as Fairchild, long beard. Yeah, it would be fun. It would be a lot of fun. Meet a lot of fun play people. Um, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Skype during the COVID-19 isolation period. You can check out Daniel's book, The Food Explorer, The True Adventures of a Globe-Trotting Botanist Who Transformed What America Eats at his website at danielstonebooks.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and share the link with your friends. We now have more than 60 episodes available at foodiepharmacology.com and our more recent episodes are also available with full video on my YouTube channel, which is the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.